Acts chapter 8, uh, we'll start in verse 26 here in just a moment. Uh, have you ever wondered what the purpose of a conductor is? I mean an orchestra, a symphony conductor. I have. Now, just to be honest, I'm not what you would call classically trained in music. I did dabble in trombone a little bit in junior high, as everyone does. Uh, but since then, it's just, uh, you know, rolling with it. Uh, and so I've thought from time to time, like, what's the point of the conductor? Uh, it's a lot of movements and uh, a lot of pageantry for what seems like a simple metronome could accomplish. I mean, is, isn't that really just what a conductor is? Just get rolling and keep time and, and add some flourishes and that's it. Uh, and so I saw a video recently uh, that was entitled, uh, What Exactly Does a Conductor Do? And I thought, yeah, that's right. Finally, my point is going to be proven. And uh, you'll be stunned to know that I've been wrong this whole time. I know, me too. And so this video explained what the conductor does, and simple things are really important things. Like, for example, the conductor makes sure the song starts correctly and makes sure the song ends correctly. That's important. Uh, sets tempo, uh, dictates volume in different places, and is the central communicating point for the entire orchestra at one time. Uh, but this video went on to explain that the most important work of the conductor is not necessarily in the performance, it's in the rehearsals. And it's there that the conductor shows up uh, and knows the music inside and out and has an idea of what he or she wants to accomplish with the music. And then they put all the different pieces in place. You're going to come in here. You're going to be this loud. We're going to do this. Not yet. Triangle. Wait your turn. And puts it all together in the rehearsals. That's where the important work happens. So that when it comes to performance night, everything is seamless. Everything works together. The hard work has been done. And it's just time to make the music. I want you to imagine an alternative with me. I want you to imagine... Uh, an orchestra shows up for their first day of practice with a new conductor, and the conductor passes out the music and then says, all right, good luck with this. Uh, our performance is in six months. Here's the address. We'll see you there. Take it easy. And then the conductor's out of there. If you're a musician in that orchestra, don't you think a little panic would set in? There'd be some fear, some worry. How, how are we supposed to make this music work if we're not practicing together, if someone's not in control of what we're doing and how we're doing it, we all go our separate ways and we just show up and make this all work. That doesn't seem right. And so you might be fearful. Uh, you might be angry. And in fact, you might show up to the performance and not even play because no one's in control. No one's putting the pieces where they need to go. Our God is like a symphony conductor. The big theological word we use to describe him is sovereign. He's in control. He orchestrates all things. Everything is under his power, his control, uh, his dictation. Everything belongs and moves with God. Uh, however, when it comes to the practice of evangelism, I find that so many Christians operate as if God is an absentee conductor. He's given us the assignment, go make disciples of all nations. And then we forget that he is the 
sovereign in salvation symphony, that he puts the pieces in place, moves us, gives us the words to, to speak and the place to speak them and the people to speak them to. We operate as if it's all only on us. And so in our evangelism, we are fearful and we are panicky. And because we functionally operate as if no one is in control of this whole thing, I find so many Christians shut down. We simply don't share our faith. But I believe that if we really understood how actively sovereign God is, we would share our faith more frequently, more winsomely, and with greater effectiveness. The story we're studying today in Acts chapter 8 is an incredible display of the way God orchestrates both the speaking of the gospel and the receiving of the gospel. God is the prime player in this story. Uh, And so if we study this passage right, we're going to walk out of here this morning utterly convinced that God orchestrates every part of every gospel conversation. And as a result, we will have greater confidence to tell the story of Jesus Christ to more and more people. So I want to show you in this passage today four ways God orchestrates gospel conversations. I want to build your confidence in our active God. Here's the setting in Acts chapter 8. In the previous chapter, Acts chapter 7, we have the first Christian martyr. A man named Stephen preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, and as a result, he is stoned to death by an angry mob. After Stephen's execution, a great persecution breaks out against Christians in Jerusalem. Many Christians are imprisoned. Many more scatter to the surrounding areas uh, in order to save their own lives and to maintain some semblance of freedom. The gospel preached is the reason for the persecution, but the persecution does not stop the speaking of the gospel. In fact, when Christians scatter, they take the gospel with them and they keep telling the story. And one example of that in the early part of chapter 8 is a man named Philip. Philip is one of the original 12 disciples. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 8, he flees to Samaria, region to the north. And there he proclaims Jesus Christ and many people believe and it's an incredible thing that happens there. But then... God speaks to Philip and says, I've got a new assignment for you. (coughs) And that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Follow along with me as I read. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, Get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got up and went. There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch, and a high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. The spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. When Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone guides me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the scripture passage he was reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. 
the eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about, himself or someone else? Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. As they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, look, there's water. What, should keep, or what would keep me from being baptized? So he ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him any longer, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip appeared in Azotus, and he was traveling and preaching the gospel in all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is an incredible passage of Scripture, a beautiful story of salvation, and it highlights for us the sovereignty of God. Let me show you in this passage four ways God orchestrates gospel conversations. The first way is this, God plans our gospel encounters. How is it that God is at work in our sharing of Jesus Christ? God plans our gospel encounters. What we find in this story is that God's the prime mover. He puts Philip and the Ethiopian man exactly where he wants them for his precise purpose. And so I want you to glance with me at verses 26 through 29, and let's just highlight all the places where God acts. What are the things that happen under the direct influence of God? In verse 26, the angel of the Lord directs Philip uh, to the road out of Jerusalem. In verse 27, the Ethiopian man Why has he come to Jerusalem? He came to Jerusalem to worship. God has influenced him, brought him that far. Then in verse 28, the Ethiopian is on his way home via this specific road. God has him traveling the specific road where he'll have Philip come as well. And then verse 28, the Ethiopian man is reading from the prophet Isaiah. He's got a copy of the word of God, a scroll in his hands. And then verse 29, the spirit tells Philip to approach the chariot. God is moving All the pieces in this encounter. Nothing is left up to chance. God brings these two men together. Now the question we need to wrestle with here is, uh, is this an isolated example? Or does God operate like this all the time? I mean, it's possible this is just kind of a one-off thing and every other evangelistic encounter is just left up to chance. But if you were to just do a quick survey through the book of Acts, what you'll find is that God is always bringing gospel speakers and gospel receivers together, always. Let me just spout out a few examples. In chapter 10 of the book of Acts, a man named Cornelius has a vision, and then the Lord sends Peter to his house to tell him about Jesus. In chapter 11, the Lord's hand is with those believers who shared the gospel with Greek Gentiles and large numbers of people believed. In chapter 13, the language says the Holy Spirit set apart Saul and Barnabas to travel and speak the gospel. In verse 14, God opens the door of faithfulness, or excuse me, the door of faith to Gentiles. In chapter 18, God encourages Paul by saying, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking, and don't be silent because I have many people in this city. And then in verse 19, the Holy Spirit sends Paul to Macedonia. Those are just a few of many examples in the book of Acts where God puts speakers and receivers in place at the same time. God's track record is consistent. He carefully orchestrates the telling of the gospel and the receiving of the gospel. As one of my friends has often said it, God will always match a willing witness with a seeking soul. He always brings those two together. 
but don't you already know this? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, don't you know this by your own experience? I want you to think about your own conversion. Was it just dumb luck? Was it just a coincidence that you heard the gospel and you believed the gospel? Even if you're just, say you're in a hotel room in a moment of desperation, you open the drawer and there's a Gideon Bible. Is it just luck that that's there and that that's what speaks to you in that moment of need? Nothing of your conversion was by luck or by chance. Every single part of it was designed by God so that you would be right where you needed to be to hear the message you needed to hear so that you would believe and be transformed. And it's very possible that God is even orchestrating another hearing of the gospel for someone in this very service today. How much must God love you to orchestrate your life and details around your life so that you would hear the good news about Jesus and you would believe the good news about Jesus and you would be given eternal life? How much must he love you to show you such grace? So God is the sovereign in control of these gospel encounters. But what I find is that we are prone to two common errors when we think about the relationship between God's sovereignty and our evangelism. Two common errors. One we've already pointed to. The first error is the, the error of thinking little of God's sovereignty. We de-emphasize the sovereignty of God, and therefore all the pressure is put on ourselves. So sort of that absentee conductor type of thinking. God's there, he's available, but he's just kind of pushed us out the door and said, go get him, tiger. And when we think that way, when we think little of God's sovereignty in the evangelism moment, uh, well, then it puts all the pressure on us. Our words have to be perfect. The response is up to us. If things don't go right, it's our fault. Uh, We have to find the person. We have to find the moment. All of that pressure is on us. And... Scripture just does not teach that evangelism happens in this way. A second error is this. It's similar, but it's a bit different. The second error is a twisting of the sovereignty of God, a twisting of it so that God is so in control and I have no part to play in evangelism. Uh, South Shore Baptist Church, we have a few labels that describe us. One of the labels that describes us is Reformed. We subscribe to Reformed theology. Another popular title is Calvinism. Uh, What that means in a sentence is we believe that God knows those who are his, and he knows those who are not his, and those who are his become his by hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ and believing. Now what's happened at different points in church history is you have churches and first-year seminary students who decide that God is so in control that he has no part for us to play in evangelism. And so then the work of the church, here's that twisting of the sovereignty of God, the work of the church is that we just show up, we pray, we worship, we preach, and we just let God bring in the elect that way. But if your theology undercuts the missionary mandate of the church, then brother, sister, you have a broken theology. Knowing that God knows those who are his does not dampen the evangelistic fervor of the church. In fact, it adds rocket fuel to it. If we look at the communities around us and we say, God has people in these towns. 
and they've got to hear the gospel, then that moves us from our pew to our neighbor with the good news of Jesus Christ. Reformed churches should be ferociously evangelistic, without apology, without fear, because faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of God. You're the gospel teller. These are errors, de-emphasizing the sovereignty of God, twisting the sovereignty of God. Instead, let us trust in the sovereignty of God, knowing that he puts speakers and hearers together for his grand purposes. You've been given a challenge by me to name one person in your life who needs to hear the gospel, to pray for that person, and to share the gospel with them. And I've given you a timeline. We've got just a few weeks left for us to hit some of these goals. And I would venture to say the person God's put on your heart is not there by accident. The one you're praying for is not someone you're praying for just by dumb chance. And when you speak Jesus to them, whatever that looks like and however that works, when you speak Jesus to them, God is in that moment. You're not alone, sister. Brother, you've got sovereignty on your side. Do not think about that conversation with any amount of fear, with any hesitation, but you go with the God of creation, the God of salvation, and with compassion and grace, you give them Jesus. God orchestrates our gospel conversations. There's a second way God is sovereign in our gospel telling. The second way is this. God planned the story we tell. God planned the story we tell in these moments. Do you ever get worried about what you're going to say when it comes to sharing your faith? You think, oh, I, I watched this video or I heard this guy or this, one, this person said this thing. I just, that's just not me. I'm not eloquent. I don't know how to handle it. I don't know what to say. And God's given us the script. He gave Philip the script. Something I love about Philip is that he does exactly what the Lord tells him to do. God says, get up and go to this road. What's Philip do? gets up and goes to the road. God says, approach the chariot. What does Philip do? He ran up to the chariot. That's what obedience looks like. Obedience is not a negotiation. Obedience is faith. It is trust. God speaks. We move. That's how you and I are going to have to be when it comes to sharing our faith. And so Philip gets to the chariot, and he finds the Ethiopian man reading a scroll from the prophet Isaiah. And Philip asks a great question. He says, do you understand what you're reading? And of course, the Ethiopian man does not. And so Philip then begins to explain. The man is reading from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 and 8. And in its broader context, Isaiah 52 and 53 gets a headline that's called the suffering servant. And if you were to go read Isaiah 52 and 53, it speaks of this one great servant of Yahweh who will come and suffer for the sins of mankind. Isaiah didn't know that name. He just knew there was a promised one to come. Uh, let me show you on the screen here what Isaiah 52, 53 says about the suffering servant. Here's just a little snippet from that section. Uh, we're told that he'll be rejected by man. He'll be struck down by God for man's sin. He'll be punished by God for the sins of man. He'll be silent before his accusers. Verses 7 and 8, those are the verses that the Ethiopian man is reading. We're told he's innocent yet punished as a guilty one. He'll be crushed for the guilty, and he will be vindicated for the sacrifice of his life for the rebels. Now, Isaiah didn't know the name. Do you know the name? Do you know who Isaiah 52 and 53 is speaking about? 
Yeah, that's Jesus right there. And so our passage tells us that Philip gets the chariot with him, verse 35, and proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus beginning with that scripture. He started in Isaiah 53, and he begins to unfold for the Ethiopian man the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, it's not enough that the man has been in Jerusalem to worship. And it's not enough that he knows some customs and apparently reveres Israel's God. It's not enough that he's reading from Isaiah. He must know about Jesus or he does not know God. I'm compelled by Philip's example that every single one of us, followers of Jesus Christ, must be ready at any time to share the good news about Jesus. As a follower of Jesus, we should be people who eat the word. That should be a common practice. We should be people who pray, common practice. We should be people who worship and fellowship together. That's Christianity 101, as well as being equipped and ready to share the reason for the hope that is in us in Jesus Christ. Every Christian in this room should be able to answer the question, what is the gospel? And that might take some work and some training on our part to find a resource and to commit ourselves to teaching ourselves to answer that question. What is the gospel? If someone were to come to me and say, explain to me who Jesus is and what this is all about, could you give an answer? You have the relationship, you have the leverage, you have the platform. Do you have the answer? So for us, listen, when when it comes to evangelism, we'll use a lot of different strategies. Uh, We'll use acts of kindness We'll do good things for people. We'll sacrifice for people. But listen, you have not shared the gospel until you've told them about Jesus. And they haven't heard the gospel until they've heard about Jesus. And so you have to be able to share the good news. What is it that you're going to share? If you were to look for a resource, you'll find online and in printed material uh, all kinds of ways the gospel is shared. The core tenets are the same. It's just the presentation might be a little different. And I think you need to carry in your back pocket, so to speak, a a gospel answer that is concise and that is clear. It's not a debate. You're not going into verbal warfare with another person. People don't come to faith by losing a debate. You're telling them the good news of Jesus Christ. I put on the screen uh, some bullet points for you, some sentences that take us through the entirety of the gospel. And I'm not saying that these are the exact words. Don't take a picture of this and then read it from your phone. I mean, you might do that. I don't know. But I'm giving this as an example of the type of answer you might tuck away and be ready to roll with at any time. Here's the gospel. It starts with God is the holy creator of all things. And every human should live for God's glory. That's why he created us. But we haven't. We've all sinned and rejected God. Adam and Eve's sin is our sin. And you look at our lives, our track record is sin. Therefore, we all deserve eternal punishment. But in his mercy and love, God provided a holy, sinless substitute to die for our sins. And Jesus, he is God in the flesh, holy and sinless, who died for our sins and rose again. Don't miss that. We've sinned against God, and God's the one who pays the price for our sin that we might be reconciled with him. Jesus gives eternal life to all those who will trust in him as Lord and Savior and make him the supreme treasure of their lives. That's 
the good news that though we are sinners, God has made a way for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our faith in him. The good news is not just that this legal transaction takes place. The good news is that my life is connected to Jesus Christ, the God of my salvation, the God of all creation forevermore. I am his and he is mine. That's the good news. So, brother, sister Christian, do you have a ready answer to the question, what is the gospel? If your kid or your grandchild were to ask you, or a neighbor, or the random person on the tee, would you be ready in that moment just to give a clear and concise answer? I want to challenge you in the next couple of weeks to find uh, some printed version of the gospel that you can spend time with and practice Practice imaginary conversations. If someone catches you talking to yourself, they won't think anything's amiss. You do it all the time. But in this instance, set aside time to have an imaginary conversation and practice answering the question, what is the gospel? Have an answer ready to go. Because these are the words God has given us. The power of salvation is in the gospel. The power of salvation is not in any sort of rhetorical flourish. The the Ethiopian doesn't believe because Philip has this incredible presentation. The Ethiopian man believes because he hears the gospel and hears what Christ has done for him. God's sovereign in this and that he has planned the story for you to tell. Now, in the next few weeks, you're going to share the gospel with your one. And those conversations are going to look different just across the board. We'll have people are at different places in their lives. We have different types of relationships with them. But the one common denominator is this whether it's in a single conversation or many conversations, we're going to give them Jesus. We're going to give them the gospel for the hope of their salvation and the power that they might believe will give them the gospel. So God is in control of all of this, orchestrates the encounter. He gives us the words to tell, the story to tell. And then the third way God's sovereignty is in play is God plans the response to the gospel. God plans the response to the gospel. So Philip has told his friend about Jesus, and and quite honestly, we don't have a full transcript of their conversation. For example, uh, just all of a sudden, the Ethiopian man begins to speak about baptism, but Philip hasn't said anything. According to our record here, he hasn't said anything about baptism. What that tells us is that there are things that Philip says that are not recorded here by Luke. But because we know the track record of the gospel proclaimed and the call to repentance and faith, and also because we know the place of baptism in the life of the believer, it's a safe assumption that Philip, when he told him about Jesus from Isaiah 53, called him to faith, told him of repentance and trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation, told him about baptism, and so the man asks about baptism. Now, God's sovereignty is seen at this point in the man's response to the good news about Jesus. And it's vital that we carry with us an understanding that God is sovereign over the response. Again, the Ethiopian man doesn't um, proclaim faith and ask to be baptized because of Philip's beautiful presentation. He responds because God's in control. God brought that man to that road and that place at that moment to hear this story so that he would believe. Think of all that God did to move this Ethiopian man from his 
home base in the palace where he served the queen, all the way to Jerusalem and then back down the road to Gaza. Uh, God has made this moment what it is. And so for you and I, we put so much pressure on ourselves in the result. Uh, That success is only going to be success if the person I'm sharing with says yes to Jesus Christ. But if God is sovereign, that means that there are going to be many different types of responses to the gospel. And we see that throughout the New Testament. In the New Testament, we see people who hear the gospel and they do respond with faith in Christ, and that's incredible. We also see people who hear the gospel and they don't respond with faith, but they want to know more. We see other people who hear the gospel and they reject it outright, and we see other people still who hear the gospel and they reject it with violence. And God has orchestrated every one of those responses, even the violent ones. Before this story and after this story, in chapter 8, is a man named Saul. And when he first heard the gospel, he responded with violence. And then in chapter 9, he himself is on a road trip to the city of Damascus, and he meets Jesus Christ face to face. Jesus orchestrates every response. This is good news for us as gospel tellers. Why? One, it redefines failure. If Jesus is in control, if God has orchestrated the response of the one who hears the gospel, then failure is redefined. Uh, Failure is not seen in any sort of uh, negative response to the gospel. The only failure is the failure to share. That's it. The only failure is the failure to share the gospel. The person's response does not dictate success or failure because God's in control of that. The only failure is the failure to share. This also redefines success for us. What is success? Well, a harvest (laughs) is successful. That's great and wonderful, but it's not guaranteed every time we share the gospel. And so success is obedience. Brother, sister, Christian, it's sharing the gospel with the other person. And this leaves us completely reliant upon God. If God is the one who's in control of the response, then Uh, We are trusting him to move and work as only he does according to his perfect will. And that's why we're praying for our one. Aren't we praying for them because God is the one who's in control? God's the one who has appointed our times? And so we're praying, God, let this be the time and let this gospel seed do its work when I share it with them. So I think this gives us greater confidence when it comes to actually speaking the gospel. The pressure is off of us to produce a result, but the call is clear to just walk in obedience. I think this is good news for us also, especially if you have people in your life whom you've been praying for for a long time who don't walk with Jesus. It's easy for you to blame yourself, to feel like you're the one who's failed them. And I've got people like that in my life, and every now and then, Just like you, my hope tank runs low. But that's when I remind myself again of the sovereignty of God who orders everyone's steps. He's appointed their times. He knows their names. And so we continue to pray, and we continue to engage them with the gospel, and we trust the one who is their only hope to open their eyes in his perfect timing. So God's in control of all of this. He sets the gospel conversations. He gives us the story we tell. He's sovereign over the responses of the hearers. And finally, God plans the places the gospel is shared. 
He plans the places the gospel is shared. There's a lot of geography happening here in this story. He planned the place on the Gaza Road, brings Philip all the way from Samaria down to this road. He brings the Ethiopian man all the way from Ethiopia up to this road. God planned that place. And then in the last few verses, 39 and 40, there's more places named. So the Ethiopian man, he gets out of the water, gets in his chariot, he goes on his way back home rejoicing. Now, we don't know for sure what happens with the rest of this man's life. Uh, my guess is he went home rejoicing and then he had a reason to tell people why he was rejoicing. I, I think this man responds like all people do in the New Testament. When they give their lives to Christ, they become gospel speakers. In fact, there's one church historian that says this man uh, was a, became, a, he became a great evangelist and a church planter. We, just, we have no hard evidence of that, just a story But this man is on my list of people to look up when I get to heaven. I want to know the rest of the story. What happened when you got back home? What happened the rest of the time there? One thing I find interesting here is that this man came to Jerusalem to worship. But he didn't really start worshiping until he was on his way home. Then he worshiped like he had never worshiped before, like a man who knew his Savior. Philip, we're told explicitly, continues to speak the gospel in different places. Verse 39, when they come out of the water, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch didn't see him any longer. Does that mean that Philip was sort of transported supernaturally, miraculously by the Holy Spirit? It could mean that. We have examples of that in Scripture where God just moves people in these supernatural ways. But it doesn't necessarily mean that. It could just be Luke telling us that when this interaction was done, they said goodbye to each other, went their separate ways, and then the Holy Spirit led Philip down the road to a town called Azotus. I want to show you a map just so you can get a feel for where uh, Philip has been traveling. I don't know about you, I love a good map. Can I get a woohoo for the map? That's what I'm talking about. So, it's hard to see uh, because uh, the colors don't come through very great, but you can see hopefully Jerusalem kind of in the center of the map, uh, that's where Philip started. And these arrows show us Philip's travels from beginning of chapter 8 and on. He started in Jerusalem, and he went up to Samaria. And then that's where the Lord spoke to him and said, get thee to Gaza Road. And so he heads south to the desert road that goes south out of Jerusalem towards Gaza, down here on the Mediterranean coast. So somewhere on that road is where he entered or encounters the uh, Ethiopian man. Uh, from that encounter, we're told that the Holy Spirit took him to Azotus, so just to the north, again, another coastal town. Azotus is also known as Ashdod. And we're told that in all the towns up the coast, Philip went and he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ until he got to Caesarea, there in the north, another coastal city in Samaria, of all places. And there he buys a house, and he gets married, and he has a family. We don't hear from Philip again for about 20 years. Acts chapter 21, he shows up again as a resident of Caesarea with four daughters who are all prophetesses. Every place Philip goes, he shares the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has appointed the places for us to speak of Jesus. 
Where has God placed you to share the gospel? He put you at Linden Ponds. He put you at Leisure Woods. He put you in a school, your middle school, your high school. You're not just there because you live in the district. You're there because God has a purpose for you in that specific place. The neighborhood you live in, the job you have, the commute you take, or maybe he places you in another country altogether. You are not in these places by accident. God knew those places need the gospel light, and so he gave you an address and neighbors and friends and coworkers and influence with the gospel. He puts you there by his own design. My grandmother is uh, one of my spiritual heroes, and uh, she lived in the same house in the same small town for over 60 years. The house next to her the whole time was a rental. And every time the house was empty, she prayed, God, give me non-believing neighbors. And over the course of those 60-plus years that she lived there, not a single Christian family moved into that house. And not a single non-Christian family moved out of that house. You get me? Because God sovereignly orchestrates the places. He puts us where we are because he's got this incredible plan, intricate. He's putting all the pieces in place that you and I, where we are, would be tellers of the good news of Jesus Christ. So in this story... We see God in full control. He's not an absentee conductor. He's the one who is supremely attentive to every part of the gospel telling and the gospel receiving. So he plans your gospel conversations. He's given you the story to tell. He orchestrates the responses of the hearers, and he plans all the places where you're supposed to be his witness. Several years ago, I I took a short-term mission trip to Moscow, met up with some missionary friends there. And they told us about the city that during the day uh, when commuters come in, the population of the city would swell to 16 million people. And here they are, one little family from the southern United States, living in an enormous Soviet area, or excuse me, Soviet era prefab apartment building. And they're there to make an impact with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in my immaturity, I thought, you've got to be a little cuckoo to think you're going to move into this place and you're going to make an impact for the gospel. Maybe you do have to be a little cuckoo, but you certainly have to trust a God who is sovereign. And as I watched in those few weeks and I saw what they did, how they lived and the lives they were impacting, it was clear to me God had plucked them out and put them exactly in the place he wanted them to be for the purposes that he had preordained before the foundations of the earth, that they would be in those places speaking the gospel in Russian to people who needed to hear it. Whether it's Moscow or Massachusetts, God is orchestrating the spread of the gospel in new life for those who believe. So God has called you, and God has given you the story, and he has given you the people, and he has given you the place. Will you give him your yes? Will you get up and go? Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the way you have moved our lives. We just, we forget what sovereignty is like, how perfect and beautiful it is. And we forget that you're the one that 
put all the pieces in place for us to hear the gospel and respond to it. Thank you for your attentiveness, for your grace, for your mercy. You've been so good. Lord, we need the courage, the boldness that comes from knowing you are at work in this way even now. You've put on our hearts people whom we love that do not walk with you. And we've committed in the next few weeks to tell them the good news of Jesus. Let us do that with a supreme awareness of your sovereignty in the moment. Thank you that you're in control of every part of that conversation. You're there before we are. You love that other person way more than we do. You have appointed their steps and their days and their times, and you've appointed this conversation. Lord, give us courage for the task and joy in the task and confidence in the gospel that is the power of salvation to those who believe. Father, I pray for my friends in here that may not walk with you, that this morning they would have gained an incredible understanding that their life is not just happen chance, that you have ordered their steps. And you brought them to this moment that they would hear and they could believe on the one who gave everything for them. Bring new life today as they believe in you. Father, move us out. Give us the words. Let us have stories to tell of how faithful you are to your promises as we share the good news of Jesus with those around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.